At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Welcome to our Christmas message series, Eyewitness, Finding Your Christmas Story in Theirs, where you're invited to find your story in the extraordinary experiences of the men and women who witnessed the very first Christmas. Together, we'll see that no matter who we are, the coming of the Christ was for us. begin this morning by just making a statement. I think this is true. I'm not sure if it's true from the Hallmark movies that seem to be on a loop this time of year, uh, but I do think it is true when you go back to the classic movies, ladies like the strong, silent type. Is that true? Yes. Very clear right there up front. The steady, dependable, humble, hardworking kind of guy. Whether you look to the old westerns and the classics, the movie stars of old had that strong, silent type. They fit that masculine stereotype. You might be wondering why in the world are you talking about that in a Christmas series? Well, because we're returning to the scene of Jesus' birth today. We're returning to the nativity, and we're going to interact with a young man who is actually the epitome of that description. He is the epitome of the strong, silent type, and his name is Joseph. Joseph was so silent, yet so strong, that none of his words are actually recorded in Scripture. We know about Joseph, we've heard about his life, and there is not even one sentence that is captured based upon what Joseph actually said. And yet today, we're going to learn a lot from the quiet strength displayed, not by his words, but instead by his actions. Because they are critically important to not only the Christmas story, but they are critically important to your story and to my story. So Matthew's gospel is going to be our guide today, part two of our eyewitnesses finding your story in theirs Christmas series. Now, last week, you may remember, we learned about a young lady named Mary and how God provided for her, but not only provided for her, what he did was he gave her faith and she walked in faith in terms of her response. So it was God's provision and Mary's faithful response. Now remember, Mary is the mother of Jesus. I don't need to tell any of us that, but just as a point of reference, we're looking last week at Mary, the mother of Jesus. Today, we get to talk about Joseph, the man who was given the responsibility of parenting or fathering the baby Jesus. So let's grab our Bibles, and we're going to turn to Matthew's gospel. Matthew is our guide. We're going to begin with chapter 1, and we're going to start at verse 18. Verse 18 of chapter 1 is where we are going to pick up the story as Matthew tells it about the birth of Jesus. So let's read together. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. 
and her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, well, he resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And so she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So when Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and he took his wife, but he knew her not until she was given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Matthew. He's the author of that gospel account, and Matthew is a Jew, and he wrote his gospel for a Jewish audience. It's very important for us to grab a hold of this, that the primary emphasis of Matthew's gospel is to demonstrate to the Jewish people that Jesus is, in fact, their long-awaited Messiah. That is the thrust of what Matthew is communicating. And he seeks to affirm that in the person of Jesus, that in Christ All the Old Testament prophecies that point to the Messiah are fulfilled in Him. This is why the first half of the chapter, chapter 1, gives us a whole genealogy that highlights three distinct segments of Jewish history. You might say, well, wait a second, you just skipped that part. We didn't read that part. That's true. We skipped through verses 1 through 17. There's a lot of names there, and there's a lot of names there, and there's a lot of names there. And let's be honest, most times when we see that, we can't pronounce them. We don't know who they're connected to, and so we just kind of go, oh yeah, let's, let's go past that. Not this time. Not this time. You see, the categories that Matthew puts these in are three distinct segments of Jewish history, and here's what I mean. The first segment, the first block, are human beings who were born for greatness, God's chosen people from Abraham through David. Then the next segment of people, the next grouping... Our human beings have lost their greatness. That's this kind of story that we see under the umbrella of this this Jewish history. God's people down to the exile. And then the third segment are human beings, and we see how we can, in fact, regain our greatness through Jesus, who is the Christ, who brings redemption to our world. There's one segment and two segment and three segments, and each of those segments have 14 generations captured. Segment one, you were born for greatness. Segment two, you've lost your greatness. Segment three, human beings can regain that greatness, and it's found at the end see, when you and I read that genealogy, we often just kind of blow past that and say, yeah, that's a bunch of Jewish names for Jewish people. In this case, the names and the generations carry great 
significance. There's a lot of important aspects communicated in that because what they reveal is that Jesus is the promised descendant of both Father Abraham and King David. It finds its end in Jesus, who is the Christ. It's very important for us. And you say, well, where do we know that from? I want to take you on a quick tour of the Old Testament. Just two specific passages that highlight the importance of this. First is the promise that God makes to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. He says, I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I'm going to bless you, Abraham, so that you will be a blessing and all the families of the earth shall be blessed through you. That's Genesis 2, or uh, chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. Then you skip ahead to 2 Samuel chapter 7 and God makes a promise to King David. He says, I will establish the throne of his kingdom and I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. These texts serve as this foundation upon which Matthew helps us see the pattern of redemptive history. It's a pattern there, and you'd say, wait a second, it's just a bunch of names. It is, but those names carry great significance because they lead and they drive us to the long-awaited Messiah. Now, let's jump back into our text to see why it is that not just Jesus, not just Mary who we looked at last week, but Joseph can teach us a lot about the nativity. So let's look at verse 18 and we'll get back into our story. Here we go. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Matthew captures it and explains it for us. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. I want to pause right there. There's a few words in there that are a little different than our cultural norms. We're used to kind of marriage in our culture having sort of two phases. You've got the engagement phase, and then you move over to here, and then you have the marriage phase. Jewish culture is a little bit different. It begins with the engagement phase, but it looks very, very different. Here's how it would work. A family would make an agreement, I will allow my child to be engaged to your child. We're going to agree to do that. We're going to make a deal. We're going to set it up. Sometimes the couple might not even see each other, might ever, never see each other. But the parents have made this agreement. That was an engagement in this Jewish culture. Then you get to the word that is new for us today. It is a word called betrothal. This is the time where the parties would close the deal. They have the deal. They have it in place. But this is the place where they would actually close the deal. They would confirm that previous engagement. Now, this was also the time where the young lady could, in fact, say, wait a second, that guy's not the strong, silent type. Not really interested. She could back out during this period of time. If she was unwilling to move ahead, this was the time to do it. Because at the end of this betrothal period, this became legally binding. The betrothal was legally binding in this culture. 
So that's step two in this marriage process. Then you get to step three, and that is the marriage, and it took place, obviously, at the end of the betrothal. So to be clear, to be clear for our story, it was in the betrothal stage that Joseph found out that Mary was carrying a child. And because it was legally binding, Joseph would, in fact, need to divorce her to end their relationship. In that moment, Joseph would need to file for divorce. And that's exactly when something amazing happened. In that moment, that is when something amazing happened. Let's continue reading our story. Let's pick it up at verse 19. And after her husband Joseph being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, he resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. You should call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Wow. Let's just all take a breath and imagine yourself in that moment. Last week, I challenged you to kind of consider yourself and consider what it would be like to be Mary. I want you to consider now what it is like to be Joseph in this space. An angel has come to you in a dream, and it says, go ahead, marry her. Go ahead and get married. Do not be fearful of it. Go ahead with your marriage. Oh, by the way, your, your betrothed is carrying a baby who was supernaturally born and created by the Holy Spirit. Whoa. And then once the child is born, I want you to name him. But I don't want you to just kind of turn back to the recesses of, of the lineage you have. I want you to enter into this and name him Jesus because that name matters. That name is given to him because he will save the world from their sins. We're not told Joseph's thoughts in that moment. But if you are thinking about this story, you have to be in the place where you kind of go, oh, what? I, I, I was sleeping, and all this information came to me in a dream from an angel of the Lord. You can be sure that Joseph in that moment shook his head a little bit and said, whoa, did I, did I catch that right? Am I processing this correctly? Also in that moment, Joseph had to consider the cultural embarrassment and the cultural shame that would come his way. There's no way around that. And also you have to be thinking about all the things that would be said of his bride. Do 
And yet Joseph's response, Joseph's response in that moment is one that every single one of us can learn from today. We can wrap our mind around it because it is in the quiet strength Joseph shows that God's people can trust the plan of God. God's people can, in fact, trust the plan of God. Now, not unlike any of us, Joseph was a person who likely had plans. I mean, he was engaged, he was betrothed, he's ready to be married. It's safe to assume that he was there and he was saying, hey, I'm going to have a family, I've got some carpentry skills, I want to develop those. You can imagine that he had a plan for his life, and in the middle of that, God intervened. And he gave Joseph a new set of plans. Church, this is the life of faith. This is what it means to live the life of faith, a life of trusting in God's plan, even when He changes your particular path. It's not always the way you drew it up. It's not always the plan that you wanted. It is not necessarily the dream scenario that you or I create for ourselves, but God's plans are bigger and higher and better than our plans. And that's exactly what we see in the life of Joseph. God's plan was bigger and higher and better than anything Joseph could have imagined. Now, I just kind of highlighted a few things that we might be considering, but I want to contrast those for, for us for just a moment. If you were Joseph, you likely were, you were ready to get married, you're ready to begin a family, you were ready to, to kind of get maybe your carpentry business started, begin serving those in your community, doing some quality work for your customers, live a a simple life of faith. It's fair to assume that that is what Joseph had in mind. And yet God's plan was completely different. God says, you are going to name the child that I have blessed your wife with supernaturally. Oh, by the way, you're also going to care and nurture the young boy who would grow to change the entire world by sparing his life on a cross for all who would repent of their sin and believe. You're going to nurture that young man. Joseph had no way of understanding all of this in that moment. He probably heard those words but there's no way he could fully wrap his mind around everything that is being communicated. And yet in quiet humility and strength, Joseph trusted the plan of God as it was revealed to him in that moment. And that's what God asks of you and of me today. To believe that Jesus is not just the Lord who saves you from your sin. He is that. But he is also the one who knows you, who loves you, and has a plan that is best for you and for his purposes. 
This is why the writer of Proverbs tells us these words. Many are the plans in the mind of men. We all have our plans, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. It is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. So believer, let me make this a little bit more personal. We've been looking at it through the eyes of Joseph and what that would be like. Let's make this a little bit more personal. Your career today might not be the one that you drew up for yourself. You'd say, I thought I would be here, but now I'm here. It's not working out according to my plan. You might not have the home that you always wanted. You'd say, you know what, my neighborhood is fine, but I'd really like to be in that neighborhood. The life you have is not how you would have designed it. But God has plans that go beyond your plans. God has plans that go beyond my plans and what He asks of His people to humbly walk in faith trusting in His plan. Trusting in His plan. Now let's return to our text to see something else. A second thing that we can learn from Joseph. Pick it up at verse 24. It says, When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, But he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Clearly, Joseph has overcome those initial hesitation. Earlier in the text, we read that he was considering divorce. Clearly, he did not do that. He took his wife, Mary. Now, I want to be clear about something. It says it in the text two specific times. He did not have sexual relationship with her until after the birth of their son. That's what it means by he knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And then he did something else. He not only took Mary as his wife, but then he named the boy Jesus, just as he had been instructed to do by the angel of the Lord. And it's in that quiet strength that Joseph models for us the second thing that we are called to today, and that is to obey the word of God. Believers are called to obey the word of God. Over and over and over and over, Joseph models faithfulness to the word of God. I want to take just a little quick trip down the path of Joseph's life that we catch at the beginning of Matthew's gospel. God says, take Mary as your wife. Joseph took Mary as his wife. God says, name the child Jesus. What do you guys think Joseph did? He named the child Jesus. Later in Matthew's gospel, God says, Joseph, flee to Egypt with Mary and with Jesus. What did he do? Joseph fled to Egypt with Mary and Jesus. Ultimately, Joseph is then instructed to leave Egypt after a period of time and, in fact, return to Israel. What do you think Joseph did? What do you guys think he did? He took Mary, he took Jesus, he left Egypt, and he returned to Israel. And that's where he established a home in Nazareth. Church scholars often refer to Joseph as the silent saint. 
for his compassion towards Mary, his openness to the will of God, and those things are certainly true. But when I read, when I reflect upon the life of Joseph in what we see in Matthew's gospel, what I see is a series of selfless acts of obedience. Selfless acts of obedience. I see an obedience to God that is remarkable in its consistency over and over and over again, time and time and time again. God gives Joseph words of direction And in humble faith, he does exactly what God calls him to do. Now, if you're like me, you've probably heard the story of Joseph many times. We talk about this, that you've probably heard the story of Mary a number of times. You've seen the nativity scene. You know the story. You can kind of hit the high points. Yeah, Joseph was engaged to be married. Yep. Suddenly, there was this tough decision because Mary has a baby, and we know that he stayed by Mary's side. He was at the stable. He's in the little figurine when we put out the nativity scene in our house. There's little Joseph. He's there. But here's how the narrative typically goes. When we consider the life of Joseph, what we often are told is, well, yeah, he did that because he was an upright guy. He was a family man. What I hope we're seeing today is that while that is true, I want us to see something more powerful, more significant, and something completely different. Joseph certainly did those things, but if that is our only perspective, we've missed the heartbeat of Joseph's life and his faith. If we simply push it aside and say, oh yeah, he was an upright guy and he was a family guy, what we miss is that Joseph had modeled godly obedience over and over and over again. So believer, as we consider Joseph's silent, faithful obedience. I want to remove it from the Joseph story, remove it from being that eyewitness account, and I want to turn it upon us. Where is God calling you to humble, quiet obedience? Where is it in your life? Could it be in your marriage? You'd say, you know what, I know things are tough, Not unlike Joseph, I've considered divorce. But I know that God is calling me to stay. God is calling me to stick around. God is calling me to work it out. My act of obedience is to following what God is calling me to do. Or perhaps it's in your family life. As an adult, you would admit that it is hard to always put your needs behind those of your family, of your kids. You want to have time with your friends. You want to spend time on your hobbies. You want to do your thing. You're an adult. And yet God is calling you to put the needs of your family first. God is calling you to invest in the lives of your children instead of investing in your golf game or your hobby. 
make daily investments in the lives of your kids. That is what it looks like to be obedient for some of us today. Now, church, those are just two examples. There's a number of other examples of what humble, silent, faithful, obedient looks like. You know what God is doing and what He is stirring in your heart and mind. What is an area of your life that God is calling you? He's given you clear direction and He is calling you to trust Him. He is calling you to obey Him. What are those areas? If we have an up-to-date, active, real, authentic faith in Jesus Christ, God is speaking to us through His Word, through those silent moments in prayer, through the counsel of other believers. What is God calling you to trust Him on, to obey Him in? One of my favorite books is a book called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. It is written by a guy by the name of uh, Eugene Peterson. He was, a, he was a pastor and an author. And in that book, he writes these words. He says, Our lives are lived well only when they are lived on the terms of their creation, with God loving us and being loved, with God revealing and us understanding, with God commanding, and us responding. Church, that's obedience. That's trust. So as we continue to consider the eyewitnesses at the nativity in this Advent season, I hope that you view the silent strength of Joseph for what it really is for what it really is, it really is a humble faith that resulted in a righteous response of obedience. Silent, humble faith that resulted in righteous obedience. And as God's people, as followers of Jesus Christ here today, may you and I, may we respond to God's call with that same silent strength that we might trust God's plan and that we might obey God's word. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's Word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org forward slash connect to introduce yourself today.